2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The pound's reaction to news on Brexit. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jake Clayton. Bloomberg
0: Wall Street Week. With David Weston on Bloomberg Radio.
2: Davos decided to what the world should be concerned about, and competition in streaming video heats up. I'm David Weston. Welcome to Bloomberg Wall Street Week. This week was the week of Davos, that annual gathering in the Swiss Alps when the great and the good convene to reassure one another that they are both great and good. With talk this year about growth and reduced trade tensions and high hopes for 2020, one of our Wall Street Week contributors, Chief Bloomberg Economist Stephanie Flanders, was on the scene and gave us this week's Contributors Take.
3: They like to talk big here in Davos about the threats the world must confront. Climate change, the dark side of the internet, technology turning old business models on their heads. But about the short-term state of the global economy, the conversation here has been remarkably upbeat. But don't be fooled. The past two years of drama have come at a cost. And if we don't pay it in 2020, we will almost certainly feel it down the road. I mean, remember, the U.S.-China trade deal has not removed most of the tariffs the Trump administration slapped on Chinese goods. The average tariff on Chinese imports to the U.S. is now nearly 20%, up from 3% two years ago. And China has put similar tariffs on U.S. imports. Everyone agrees all the really important stuff has been left for the Phase 2 deal, and there's little chance of that happening this side of the presidential election. And because the US has refused to appoint anyone to the appeal system within the World Trade Organization, there is now no global system for resolving trade disputes. The Europeans say even the US-China deal violates WTO rules. But without that appeal system, it's not clear they could do anything about it, even if they were right. So the global trading system has taken a hit. And Britain leaving the EU is gonna make it harder for British companies to do business with their most important trading partner in a year's time. And that won't sink the UK economy, but it's going to make it hard to sustain that Boris bounce. And don't forget the most important consequence of all the dramas we've seen since 2018. The US central bank never got to take interest rates closer to normal levels, and neither did central banks in the Eurozone, China, or the UK. So after more than a decade of economic recovery, interest rates are still at, or rather close to, record lows. So yes, the Fed coming to the rescue of the US economy and the financial markets last year has probably put off the date of the next recession. But it's also taken away central bank's ammunition for fighting one when it comes. Then, I expect the movers and shakers here in Davos will be looking for those same governments to all come together to collaborate, to prop up the global economy as they did in 2008. But after everything that's happened, I wonder, is there any chance of that happening again?
2: Now to our contributors. With us today are Larry Summers of Harvard, who is not only an esteemed economist in his own right, but the nephew of two Nobel laureates in economics, Paul Samuelson and Kenneth Arrow. What you might not know about Larry, but you should be careful about this, he, as an undergraduate, and MIT was a serious debater, qualifying three times for the National Debate Tournament, which explains a lot about Larry Summers, I think. And Roger Ferguson is with us from TIAA. Roger was the only member of the Federal Reserve Board in Washington when terrorists attacked the United States on 9-11, and drew on his experience with the New York banking system to make sure the financial systems remained up and running to avoid a possible panic. Roger has a long affiliation with Wall Street Week, having watched the original Lewis Ruckheiser program with his father as a young boy growing up in Washington. So welcome, Larry. Roger, good to have you. You just heard what Stephanie Flanders, our contributor, had to say, that things look pretty good for the short term, but if there's a downturn, we're not prepared for it. What's your take, Larry?
4: I think that's about I think Stephanie was right about that. I thought her comments were in general right on the mark. I don't think she's right that it's only trade frictions and the like that explain why the Fed hasn't been able to raise interest rates. Mm-hmm. I think it's the much more fundamental things we talked about a couple of weeks ago, having to do with secular stagnation, rising savings, diminished investment propensity, all that. And I think we have a deep problem of maintaining demand without having unsound uh, financial conditions. And they should be talking about that in Davos, but I actually don't think uh, they are. I also have to say I've been going to Davos probably 25 (laughs) of the last uh, 30 uh, years. I missed it this year. And in general, I'm not sure it's a leading indicator. I think it might be a contrary indicator. When Davos is most optimistic, that's when things (laughs) tend to get worse. When Davos is most pessimistic, that's when things uh, tend to get better.
2: Roger, I want to pick up on one thing. Larry said it's not all about trade, but people are talking about trade. We had Christine Lagarde about what was going on with Europe, and this is what she said. She said part of the turnaround in Europe is because of trade.
3: The risks surrounding the euro area growth outlook (laughs) related to geopolitical factors, rising protectionism, and vulnerabilities in emerging markets remain tilted to the downside, but have become less pronounced as some of the uncertainty surrounding international trade is receding.
2: Okay, so how much of the optimism in the economy overall is because of at least a receding of trade tensions?
5: I think a fair amount of it, frankly. As one thinks about what was happening last year, uh, a year and a half ago, there was anxiety about recession. That receded anxiety about trade as Trump put on more and more tariffs and indeed as we got through the so-called phase one deal my sense is that markets were breathing a bit of a sigh of relief. Having said all of that if you listen to everything Christine had to say she also points to a number of other risks some which are still as she says tilted to the downside right. and so if I put Christine's comments in the broader context of what's next particularly for the ECB what I take from the entire picture is Trade uncertainty perhaps has receded. That might help growth just a little bit. Okay, we're going to be back
2: with our contributors. Coming up next from Davos to a different kind of entertainment, the kind on film that gets Oscars and Emmys. We talk of the streaming media transformation with Dean of Media Analyst, Jessica Reef Ehrlich from Bank of America. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall
0: Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio.
2: 2020 is shaping up to be the year of streaming video. And the competition is really heating up. Comcast's Peacock app is the latest on the scene, entering a crowded space already occupied by Netflix, Amazon, and Disney. So consumers who were hoping they might just save some money by cord cutting are now facing the prospect of paying $7, $13, $15 for each of the individual streaming services. But so far, it isn't slowing them down. Bank of America sees people continuing to add to their streaming this year, and that at least three streaming subscription for each of us will become the the new norm. And the services appear to be willing to spend whatever it takes to keep their growing customer base. It, in that critical race to create streaming content, Netflix last year outproduced everybody else with nearly 60 releases. Now, two of their streaming films, The Irishman and Marriage Story, are in the Oscar running for Best Picture. So, whether you've jumped on the streaming bandwagon yet or not, if you're rooting for Robert De Niro in The Irishman, you are a streaming fan. We are back with Roger Ferguson and Larry Summers, and we welcome now our special guest, Jessica Reef Ehrlich from Bank of America. Back when I ran the ABC television network and then ABC News, Jessica was the person on the outside we paid attention to when we wanted a smart, informed take on what was going on in media generally, in the companies we were competing with, and I have to say sometimes even within our own company. She covers broadcast, cable, satellite, filmed entertainment, and now streaming video for Bank of America. Jessica, welcome. Great to have you Thank you, you here. so much. What an introduction.
6: Well, oh my it's God. all true. You <laughs> know it's
2: all true. So uh, start with the most basic question. Why is 2020 the year? We've heard about streaming for some time now. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. You think this is the year?
6: This is the year everybody launches. So Disney Plus launched, well, late 2019, but it was an amazing launch. Yeah. They had 10 million subscribers the first day. In, way uh, past the estimates. Way past. I mean, they, they were, they've been talking about well, they said um, 60 to 90 million subs in five years, of which 30 percent would be in the U.S. I mean, they're obviously going to blow past their forecast, mm. not even a question. But then we have Peacock, which is owned by Comcast or NBC Universal, parent company Comcast, launching phase launch April and then bigger push behind the Olympics. HBO Max is launching. So there's just all the traditional media companies have to get in the game. Discovery is launched also in a very different way, but every media company has got to be in streaming. That is, This is the new distribution system.
2: Is this an offensive move or a defensive move? I mean, do they see a lot of money out there to be made, or are they saying we have to get there because otherwise we lose our base?
6: It, it, it's both. I mean, it, 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 clearly it was defensive and they, you know, everybody sort of held back, but it takes a long time. To have the technology and there's a lot of content it's not just library content that's going in but original to keep people on and uh, you know all the strat each strategy is a little bit different but the traditional media companies are competing with the fang companies who have not unlimited funds but humongous humongous balance sheets
5: so can we talk a bit about those funds because if one looks at what Netflix has been doing three billion dollars spend the free cash flow burn rate is pretty high The markets sort of hoping that it settles down to only two and a half billion next year. The the cost of entry is, is is huge. You've had both content and the technology. So how is this? How does this become profitable for a lot of these businesses? It's—I
6: mean—the the traditional media companies have given a path to profitability, and they are different. Netflix is spending seventeen billion dollars in cash on content this year, Amazing. and the, and the burn is, as you said, the free cash flow—it's negative more than three billion. Huh. So it's—and that would not be accepted from for traditional media investors. Having said that, there are advantages that the traditional media companies have. They have brands. They have they have content that they already produce in any case they have deep libraries and maybe most important they have humongous platforms to promote from so think about peacock's launch they will launch um initially in april and with all of comcast properties and its you know, theme parks films you know there, there are a lot of touch points cable networks and then when they they really fully launch it will be behind the olympics 250 million people in the u.s watch the olympics that's an unparalleled platform when Disney launched, 96% of the U.S. was aware of, of the service <laughs> launching. So is
5: this going to be a game where scale will win out and, as you point out, the ability to cross market, et cetera? And so if one were an investor, maybe you think not as much disruption as one might have imagined. And the big names, the historic names, the NBC universals, the, the, the Disney's have a real shot at holding on and not being disintermediated
6: they sort of have been already and they're oh. fighting back. You know, we're going through this transition period and the stocks reflect. The, we've, in my entire career, decades, I've never seen multiples this low for media. So the stocks reflect the worst and now they're coming back. So it's defensive, but it's also offensive. And it's it's really interesting. Peacock had an analyst um, event recently and it's, it's a different strategy than Disney. Uh, you know, Disney is sort of Family and kids and amazing titles, you know, boys with Marvel. You, you, know, what you, you know exactly what you net geo, you know, so you, right. you know what you're getting. NBCU or Peacock will have news and sports and, you know, all of their library and, and original content, but they're also curating stuff differently. So it's, you know, it's, they're curating channels. And it's, 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 they actually they have a lot of comedy. So here's my,
4: here's my question, yeah. not, about this, not about the stock market. It's like a golden age for the viewer. There's huge amounts of stuff being produced from lots of sources, really high quality, seems to me as an amateur, really high production values. Is it economic (laughs) to produce as much new content as many new series, as many new films as are being produced right now? Or are we in a situation like when a lot of new airlines crowd into a route where sooner or later it shakes out? and the amount of capacity comes down. Is this a golden age that we're going to remember as being special in the amount of content that's being produced, or is this the new normal?
6: Uh, There has to be a shakeout. There is no way you can have 500-plus original uh, episodic shows, and and there's just no time for everyone to watch. And and, and, viewers are watching YouTube as well. I mean, there's there's just so many options right now. So there, there has to be a shakeout. So it's interesting to see everybody's different approaches, um, different revenue drivers, some is subscription, some is advertising. In the case of Discovery, there's a big piece of e-commerce as well. Um, but it, there's, there's no question that they can't all survive. With all this new competition,
4: is the price for standard properties, a half an hour news show at 6.30 in the afternoon, the, uh, World Se- the World Series, uh, the Masters, the-, the NFL. Are the prices for those things coming down just because there's so much <laughs> wow. more stuff, or are the prices going up yeah. because they're flagships that will bring everything else in?
6: I mean, the cost of sports. We're all waiting for the NFL to be renewed. Um, There is no way that's going down. There will be a lot of competition. Our view is that it will stay on broadcast TV because of the reach and the production capability. But the digital rights, there's going to be a battle. But there's a real
2: bifurcation between live sports on the one hand that is much more resistant to some of the forces we've seen as opposed to filmed entertainment. So the sports rights go up. As you said, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, things like that. The
6: sports rights are not going down. No, they're
2: just not. Okay, thanks so much to Jessica Reed for We're going to be back with our contributors. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with
2: David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The hills were alive this week in Davos with the sounds of what everyone was going to do about climate change. From investment funds talking about what they would and wouldn't invest in, to governments saying how they were going to invest in green, or what they'd already done for that matter, to reports that even the big oil companies were meeting to try to come up with a common approach to limiting CO2 emissions from the oil and gas they produce. Spoiler alert. They reportedly all agreed something needs to be done, but they couldn't agree on what to do. Here's a sample of what we heard. Given the signs uh, that climate change requires immediate
0: action, this is the decade. And so we wanted to start by saying, look, let's make some good commitments.
5: These issues have moved very swiftly from being corporate social responsibility issues or more niche issues within finance to fundamental value drivers. We
3: will ultimately divest in a company if we really think we're not getting the traction that we need. We do need
4: uh, real breakthroughs. Uh, this is no one company is going to do this. We deal a lot with millennials in terms of the next generation, and clearly they are very focused on the,
5: um, if you wish, the ethical signature. We've got to set up policies around the world that change the demand patterns uh, of uh, the market, because it isn't supply that creates economics, it's supply and
4: demand. Climate change is not going to be fixed by a central bank. And it's going to be fixed by a combination of public and private.
3: We want to invest in clean technology, in uh, green new procedures.
4: We are doing better right now than we've ever done in terms of cleanliness, in terms of numbers. Uh, We have a beautiful ocean called the Pacific Ocean, where thousands and thousands of tons of garbage flows toward us. And that's put there by other countries.
2: It's time now to turn back to our contributors, Larry Summers and Roger Ferguson. So, Roger, I'll pick on you first because this is not new to you at TIAA. You've been involved in this for some time. What do you do and what have you learned from it?
5: All right, so you're right. It's not new to us. We've been involved in climate and ESG issues for about 50 years, and we're really proud to be one of the leaders. And what we've learned over that period of time is you have to take a holistic approach. So, first, we are a very large asset manager, and we think about, first, how do we vote the shares and the proxies. And we're really proud that uh, we voted with uh, shareholder resolutions about 82% of the time, much higher than a lot of others in the industry. Uh, And so, you know, the first thing is use your voice as a shareholder to let management know that you care. Uh, The second thing that we've learned is you really are going to have to start to build uh, databases and to really understand and dig in with what companies are actually are doing and use that to engage them on getting more transparency more disclosure, including oil companies and others. And the final thing that we've learned in terms of this being a, a holistic solution is we also own and manage a lot of assets mm-hmm. and think about managing and owning those in a responsible way, be it real estate, ag, timber. So it's well, a holistic story here. do
2: you get credit for that? We investors? get some credit. Do we do have, we?
5: To be fair, we've got two classes of, of investors. We've got a group for whom ESG, climate, very important, and they want to put their money there. We have a number of others who I think are less focused. One of the things that we've learned over time, though, is all of these factors, ESG, climate, governance, et cetera, important risks to manage. And now we're starting to see the conversation turn towards the fact that this is a positive return generator, taking these factors in consideration and creating investment theses around them. So,
2: Larry, can private investment make the difference in climate?
4: I I think most of what you heard is a pretty total avoidance of the real problem and that as long as this kind of thing is the focus the problem is going to get worse. There are three things that need to happen if the world's going to make real progress on climate none of which were mentioned by any of those people. One is we need to scale back the hundreds of billions of dollars that the world spends on fossil fuels and fossil fuel subsidies. We need to have governments stop around the world subsidizing fossil fuels and their ability and their use. Second, we need much more invested by governments in clean energies. And the way governments need to get the revenue to make those investments is by levying taxes and having the people and the organizations represented in that video paying more in taxes. And none of them are willing to say that. They'd rather talk about how they've got hired a, a chief green officer and how they're using a little, putting a solar power plant, solar something or other, on their roof then recognize that they need to pay more taxes. And the third thing is we need to tax things that are bad. Right now we have a world that's oriented to taxing things that are good, like work and saving, and we need to think tax things that are bad, like putting emissions uh, into the air. So as long as the word tax and subsidy mm-hmm. are outside of the conversation, and it's all just we'll feel better If uh, we do this, the world's not going to make progress in uh, solving uh, this problem. And the president, notwithstanding emissions, the idea is that we're supposed to, in 20 or 30 years, get get the level of emissions to zero. We haven't even achieved the much more modest goal of stopping emissions from growing. Year after year. Okay, we will come back
2: with our contributors. Coming up here, we turn from investing in climate to changing operations on the ground. In one of the most difficult industries, Sophia Mendelson is here from JetBlue to tell us how she's trying to take an entire airline industry green. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week.
0: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From
2: Bloomberg Radio. We're going to stay on the subject of climate and get a second opinion now that takes us beyond the world of investing in economics to the world of operating a company. Sophia Mendelssohn is JetBlue's head of sustainability. Thank you very much for being here, Sophia. So you're trying to take an airline company green, which doesn't sound like an easy thing to do.
7: Well, it's not easy, but that doesn't mean we can't do it and we don't have to do it quickly. The larger the polluter. The more you rely on fossil fuels, the faster you have to act now. And that's why recently JetBlue has made an announcement that we are going carbon neutral on all our domestic flying. We already ca- have a carbon deal for a lot of our international flying, and we see this as the way of, g- of business going but forward. But how
2: do you do that? Is, that? is that buying offsets? And do those really work? Does that really make us ca- carbon neutral?
7: Well, the first step is that you avoid burning fuel where you You don't have to. You don't want to spend the money or burn the emissions in the first place. The second immediate step is carbon offsets now. And we've been very clear, these, these work for now, they're verifiable, they're traceable, they're retired on our behalf, they're permanent, and they're also only the first step and certainly not a silver bullet. Next has to come sustainable aviation fuel, a lower carbon alternative to a liquid fossil fuel, and of course, finally, we wanna make the transition to electric aircraft, at least for short and medium haul.
5: How do you think this plays into pricing, consumer demand? Are you expecting that you're going to get a bunch of consumers who are going to sort of sign up for that view? And, you know, this is a way that they express their support by, you know, switching some of their demand over to your airline?
7: Absolutely. We don't expect it. We're already seeing it. Europe has already seen it. And our job here at JetBlue, my job is to stay ahead of customer demand. We know people need to keep flying. They want to keep flying. Quite frankly, we need flying to keep the global economy together. But let's
2: be real concrete. As I understand, sustainable jet fuel is more expensive than other jet fuel. Mm -hmm. By the way, there's not a lot of availability, but it's more expensive. Are your customers willing to pay more for their airline ticket because they know JetBlue is green and the next guy isn't?
7: Right now, what JetBlue has done is take care of the carbon on the customer's behalf. We are paying for the carbon offset as a cost of doing business, which it is, and which we know other companies are increasingly seeing it as. As for sustainable aviation fuel being more expensive, there's nothing inherently more expensive. There's nothing about the physics of it that makes it need to be more expensive. What we need is volume, and we need economies of scale to bring that price down.
4: Stephanie, let me ask you about something I've wondered about for a long time. 30 years ago, I could fly to Chicago in half an hour less from Boston. I could fly to California in about 45 minutes less. I could fly from Boston to New York in 15 to 20 minutes uh, yeah. less. Some of that's about congestion and landing rights, yeah. but some of that's about airlines fly their planes slower so that they're gonna be more fuel, uh, more fuel efficient. Well, that's what people have told me. Mm-hmm. Do you make flights longer on JetBlue In order to save on carbon emissions and save on energy costs? Could you fly the planes faster if you wanted to?
7: Each airline flies their plane differently. What we're doing is taking care of the carbon on the customer's behalf without asking the customer to make a sacrifice. We're not saying squeeze your knees in or give up first class. We're saying flying needs to happen. You need to be on our aircraft and That creates carbon emissions, which we need to take care of as a cost of doing business.
4: So (laughs) how about the speed at which you fly the planes?
7: So uh, flying slower does in some cases save fuel. A much more business-friendly, customer-savvy way to do it is to buy new aircraft, much like JetBlue has. The new aircraft are increasingly fuel-efficient. So So can we we... talk
5: a bit more about that? So technology, I'm hearing Mm -hmm. ultimately the answer is going to be technology Mm -hmm. driving down the need to consume fossil fuels while we're waiting for... Better, uh, you know, sort of green fuels. What are you seeing when you talk to? the providers of jet engines that is helping us give you some sense of confidence this is going to get better and better over time.
7: Yeah, aviation is a bright spot in this. We're not waiting for the technology. The technology is here. The new aircraft are more fuel efficient. We've already made investments in new electric aircraft companies. Um, The carbon offsets are happening now. That's today. That's carbon being avoided and sucked out of the environment today. Sustainable aviation fuel already exists. It's already safe. We need more of it. We need economies of scale. That's an economics problem, not a technology problem. Sophia,
2: one piece of technology that the airlines can't fix on their own is air traffic control. That's true. Uh, if we were to really revamp, which I understand we need to do, it's obsolete. If we were tomorrow to revamp our air traffic control system, how much would it save in terms of carbon?
7: It would be significant. And it would not just save carbon. It would save time. It would save money. This is a really good example of the intersection of business and government. The global climate crisis is so big. It's affecting us so quickly. There is no corner of the economy that hasn't already been affected that isn't going to be Mm -hmm. potentially crippled by it. Everyone needs to be coming with part of the solution.
4: Can I tell you you a story? When I entered the government and we were in the beginning in 2009, the government was thinking about its uh, priorities. I had a meeting as the head of the President's National Economic Council with the CEOs then there were half a dozen or more, uh, airlines, and they all told me we needed to work on the air traffic control system, and Mm -hmm. they had a plan, and it was called NextGen. And the thing about the plan was it was going to take a whole gen, a whole generation (laughs) to implement. (laughs) And I said, if we did this according to your plan, when would we have a modern air traffic control system? This was in 2009. And they said 2035. Wow. And I said to them, that's really very interesting, and I appreciate it. And I know this is a really big, complicated problem, but World War II is a really big and complicated war. <laughs> and it took three and a half years yeah. Yeah. from the time we entered till the time we won huh. with 12 million people under arms. Yeah. So, why was it going to take us a, a quarter century? To get a better air traffic control system. Right. Has any progress really been made on that?
7: Yeah, there's been there's been progress made and I will say, you know, it's not the job of CEOs. No one's ever made money just waiting on congressional action, betting on what congressional action might or might not do. So what we need to do as airlines, as the people running the companies today, is find the solutions that we can work on today, like carbon offsets, like sustainable aviation fuel.
4: So are you How about airlines contributing? How about airlines contributing to an infrastructure that would enable them to save fuel costs by not spending as much time circling that would enable the lance- scarce landing mm-hmm. slots to be mm-hmm. used? Do you, don't you think the airline industry should be willing to contribute to the airline traffic air traffic control system we need? Yeah, really? absolutely.
7: We, we have. We have next-gen equipment on our aircraft. You know That uh-huh. aircraft needs to talk to other parts of the system. Government does need to build out some of that. And... Every time we land a plane, every time we fly a plane, there's so much going on. There's so many ways that we can be reducing those emissions. And what we're really looking for is the ways that affect the customer today, because this is a customer-driven revolution that we're seeing. So Sophia,
5: are you seeing action on the part of your partners, the major oil companies, the the engine companies, those that are manufacturing the planes? Is, is this becoming an ecosystem of folks supporting what you're trying to do and helping you drive it forward?
7: I think there's a lot of room for opportunity there. I'd like to see more of the majors in the sustainable aviation fuel space. There's some companies that have started making it on the smaller side. We're really looking for economies of scale going forward in 2020. And I think 2020 is gonna be the year where customers begin to demand but that.
2: But where is big energy on this? Because we heard they just met over in Dallas to figure out what they could do about CO2 emissions. It sounds like there's a proposal. So, like, okay, you wanna do something? Here's one concrete thing you could do. What did they say when you, when you talked to them about this?
7: You know they're they're working on a number of things our job in the conversation is to say the demand is here and it's not just because we're good people who want to sleep easy at night it's because our primary fiduciary responsibility on a daily basis is to protect that share price over the long run and reducing carbon emissions taking care of the carbon emissions you can't avoid is part of that financial value
5: so this goes back to a point we were making earlier. We we're talking about good returns in this space, oh. mm-hmm. and it sounds like you've just uh, convinced yourself and presumably your shareholders that over the long term. Share price would be higher if you become a green airline as opposed to if you didn't. Is that, are we reading this correctly?
7: Yeah. I mean, look at the facts that we know. We know that the climate crisis is getting worse. We know that we can't have a global economy without aviation. That means in some fundamental way, aviation is going to have to deal with their emissions. And that's not just our industry, as you guys have seen, as you've said. It's literally going to be every industry. So the price of carbon is going to rise over time. Not taking a stance on that is effectively still making a choice. Shouldn't we, I mean, I
4: I I admire enormously, really I do, what your company's doing and the energy you're bringing uh, to this. But when you say the solutions are customer-driven, I actually wonder whether you're right. That's what the tobacco industry used to say. They used to say the solutions to excess smoking are educating consumers about the bad health Mm. and consequences and letting it be customer-driven. And in fact... It turned out we've made enormous progress, almost none of which has been customer driven. We taxed tobacco, we've stopped outlawed smoking in restaurants, we've outlawed smoking in airplanes. It was basically when we decided it wasn't going to be customer driven, it was going to be policy driven, that we solved the problem. And shouldn't we not be putting you at a competitive disadvantage if you decide that you want to do the right thing and... complete offsets and your your airline competitors don't, isn't the right thing to do to make there be rules so you can do the right thing by the environment and by the future without being at a competitive disadvantage? Don't we need much more active public policy rather than this talk and hopes about private policy?
7: Well, Well, Larry, the kicker is I'm not trying to do the right thing. I'm doing the smart thing because dealing with carbon is part of going forward for any business.
2: Sophia, thank you so much for being here. That's Sophia Mendelson of JetBlue. This has been another edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. And head to Bloomberg.com for more exclusive thoughts from our weekly contributors, along with full episodes and the official Bloomberg Wall Street Week podcast.
1: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Your industry is unique.